Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, a Southern Ohio college writing class recently learned about the idea of Appalachian identity. They've got thoughts. I wouldn't really consider myself to be Appalachian. It's just kind of like a joking around thing. And Kentucky has a new poet laureate. We listen back to a 2020 conversation with author Silas House about growing up in the mountains. It's one of the things I feel luckiest about is that I grew up in the woods. My father worked third shift, and so that meant that in the summertime when I was in school, I just about had to stay outside, you know, or, or be silent. And a mural in Harlan, Kentucky, sparks strong opinions over possums. Scary but cute. <laughs> I hate them. They're disgusting. My personal opinion is that an opossum is a very low and unintelligent animal. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Back in 2021, we produced an episode we called, What is Appalachia? It was all about parts of Appalachia that for whatever reason, we don't always think about as being Appalachia. At the end, we ask listeners, how about you? Do you consider yourself an Appalachian? Well, we recently got some email responses from students in a writing class at Ohio University Chillicothe. For some of the students, it was their first encounter with the idea of Appalachia and some of the stereotypes that come with it. Their instructor, Deborah Nichols, asked the students to share their thoughts with us. Here's Nichols, along with a few of her students. This is a first year writing class at Ohio University at Chillicothe. That writing assignment, well, it was taken on a whim and it didn't exactly turn out the way I thought it might. Still, it was definitely an authentic learning experience. Here, I was trying to get students to really think about their own personal identities. The best writing starts with a great conversation, so I assigned a few readings on race, class, gender, uh, sexuality. And then I also included a transcript of your podcast, and we came together for a discussion. That class discussion about the readings sort of flopped. Some of the terms did not resonate, and not many students in the class had even heard of the word Appalachian. Um, Appalachian. I'm an 18-year-old from Southern Ohio, but I wouldn't really consider myself to be Appalachian. It's just kind of like a joking around thing where we're from. So we talked in a large group for a bit, and I shared my personal and professional experiences wrestling with that label. I shared some historical context of the region. Then I noticed your call at the end of the article. So I asked them to send an email to you about their thoughts and to copy me. It was definitely a learning experience. The students responded in a lot of different ways. Um, of course, I had learned that most students had never heard of the word, and then some students actually seemed a little defensive. They associated the word appellation with negative stigmas. You know, even though Southern Ohio fits geographically, I don't feel it fits the stigmatism. The word appellation brings such harsh terms like poor, dirty, and redneck. And Southern Ohio is beautiful and has so much more to offer us. And then other students took great pride. Uh, they took pride in the natural beauty of the region. I'm a 17-year-old from Southern Ohio. Um, I live in Appalachia and the landscape is stunning um, with the beautiful hills, the streams, and the trees. Um, mostly, we learned that the main problem with these kinds of labels is the idea that people are never homogeneous in any sort of way. Not all Appalachians are the same. I am 21 years old from Hawking County, Ohio. I do not associate myself with the cultural aspects that are associated with being Appalachian. In my opinion, Appalachian is not identity. It is it is a geographic location. So beyond those census markers like race, class, gender, sexuality, and religion, my students want to be individuals. Maybe that's because they have global access to social media, but many students would rather focus on building identities based on academic interests, hobbies, sports, career aspirations. Uh, I've lived in Appalachia my entire life, but being Appalachian has never been something that I really considered. 
But whenever thinking about my identity, my identity as a woman is something that I've considered a lot more as it holds a lot more personal importance to me. Um, I think this might be due to the overall disconnect I feel from the Appalachian culture. Um, I grew up in a more urban area, so I embraced this city lifestyle. So never really learning about the culture, I guess this made me overlook my identity as an Appalachian. So ultimately, I could tell they had not read much about our history. They had not even given our regional identity a lot of thought. Uh, The whole project was really fascinating. That was Deborah Nichols, who teaches undergraduate English writing at Ohio University Chillicothe. You may have noticed some students said Appalachia, and some said Appalachia. So we thought it might be good to listen back to a short segment from the What is Appalachia episode. Former co-host Caitlin Tan and I talked a bit about the question of pronunciation. So, Caitlin, I gotta ask, where do you stand on pronouncing Appalachia? Well, it's actually kind of funny. So, I'm obviously not from Appalachia. And so, before I moved out to West Virginia, I always said Appalachia. That was the only way I'd ever heard it out West. Um, But I quickly realized that more commonly people say Appalachia. And so, now that's what I say. I say Appalachia. I've heard plenty of folks who say it both ways, and probably growing up, I maybe said it both ways too, but at some point, Appalachia kind of sunk in, and and that's what I stuck with. But I did have a point a few years ago where I felt like a lot of people were getting angry about the pronunciation, and I think a lot of folks who say Appalachia aren't necessarily being dismissive. That's just the way they've heard it. So I just generally try not to accent shame people or make them feel bad for trying to engage in conversation. Unless they're making fun of my accent. (laughs) Then it's okay to fight fire with fire. (laughs) That was former co-host Caitlin Tan and I talking back in 2021. Since then, Caitlin's taken a job back in her home state of Wyoming. She's energy and natural resources reporter for Wyoming Public Media. Spring's here and summer's not far behind, which means it's festival season and a great time for bluegrass and string band musicians to get together and jam. In the coming months, there's the Vandalia Gathering and the Appalachian String Band Festival in West Virginia, the Old Time Fiddlers Convention in Virginia, and the Georgia String Band Festival, plus plenty of other smaller but no less vital festivals. One of the main instruments in string band music is the banjo, which originated in Africa and was brought to this country by enslaved people. The instrument was taken up by white musicians in the 1830s and 40s, and became a staple of minstrelsy. That's a form of racist entertainment in which white performers, typically in blackface, depicted stereotypes of black Americans. Eventually, the banjo crossed over into white public culture, and its history was whitewashed to obscure its African roots and identity. But in recent decades, there's been an emerging movement of black musicians who are reclaiming the banjo and taking the instrument and its sound in new directions. Folkways reporter and banjo player David Woldridge brought us this. So if you know one black banjo player in America, it's probably Dom Flemings. Dom Flemings is mostly known for being one of the members of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Everybody talking about the Sweden nowadays. That was an all African American musician string band. In the early 2000s, in this era when Americana music was, you know, really um, people were getting into it. And here you have him and his other fellow African American musician friends playing songs from this early time period where the banjo was just being introduced into white popular culture and music. And a lot of the songs come from the era of minstrelsy. Here he is um, 
digging into that difficult history. So I talked to Dom. Hey Dom, how you doing? You doing all right, David? How you doing? All right, man. I think that he is a real good ambassador for the history of the banjo. Uh, I, I just I saw that there was a need for new African American representation that could present some of the older material. All, but at the same time, not pandering to any sort of backward thinking or anything like that. We were always very 21st century and, you know, urban, hip, thinking about, you know, where does the music go from here instead of trying to be relegated to something in the past. And then there are young people like this guy, Byron Thomas, I met up in Maryland. Some of the minstrel songs I kind of just have ingrained in my fingertips and not really the the songs themselves. Yeah. I met him through an effort that the arts community up there is trying to um, get going to put in a Maryland State Historical Marker for the black banjoists that were there as early as the 1760s. And we met at Friendship Farm on the Nantamoy River in Southern Maryland to talk about and play the banjo. So Byron learned about the banjo by reading a story that was in a Boy Scout magazine And it was about a formerly enslaved man who had decided he was going to make a cigar box banjo. Just finding that article was the thing that brought me to the banjo, just because at that point in my life, it was just, the banjo was just a white instrument. So I I did not really have any kind of inclination to play the banjo at that point until I was like, huh, wait a second. What do you mean that there was a, a former slave playing a banjo? Now I have to figure out what in the world was going on and what has happened. Because now I'm very curious as to why in modern culture, at least, you know, mainstream at least and everything, we don't see any black people really playing banjos in front of us. And so that's what started it for him. And he just started digging and digging. But at the same time, he's a player. You know, he's interested in the banjo as a living thing. And um, when you hear him play, when you see him play, you can just see that he loves it. He kept saying to me more than once, like, well, if you're a black person come along the banjo today and you're like, I want a nice banjo built by a black luthier. There aren't any, you know. So when I found out about Dina and um, everything that she's into and the fact that, you know, she's always building gourd instruments, I was like, yeah, okay. Hi, I just wanted to play a little bit of music for you from a banjolele that I made before it ships out. It's a walnut neck with a little teardrop, a little water drop in the headstock. It has an oak cut out. And that's the neck. This is a beautiful piece of wood. And it's going out to my good brother Bobby. So here's a little music from it before it goes. So uh, Dina Jennings lives up near Orange County, Virginia, and grew up most of her life in Ohio. And my mom grew up in a holler in Kentucky in the Cumberland Gap area. So when I met with Dina, we met in an old converted cow barn on her place. And what I didn't realize when I was growing up We were heavily involved in a Pentecostal church, and all of our friends and family and others were from that region of Cumberland Gap. It was pretty much like the the holler during the Great Migration, when a lot of black families moved from the south to the north. It was almost like that holler unscrewed itself like a light bulb and screwed itself into Akron, where jobs were. 
She's um, a medical doctor. She is a trained conflict therapist. And she is a gourd banjo builder and musician banjo player. I just wanted to know as much as I could about the banjo. And when I learned that the banjo in North America, at least, started out as a gourd instrument, I said, well, this is amazing. I used to make a annual trip to Elderly Instruments, which is in Lansing, Michigan. It wasn't far from Akron. So I'd go up there and look around at the instruments that I either couldn't play or couldn't afford <laughs> and at least look at them and then get in the car and come back. But one year I went and I saw this banjo, this amazing banjo, and it was a simple rim banjo with a simple goatskin head um, and simple nylon strings on it, and it was tacked. And I thought, that's amazing. And when I took it off the wall and, you know, plucked around with it because I didn't know how to play a banjo, I thought, this sound is just... It was like honey from a honeycomb. It was just so warm and so rich. And I said, I need to know more. They are pieces of, of art. I mean, they're just, they sound lovely. They look lovely. You know, she takes such care with them and she chooses the pieces and she grows the gourds. And it's hard sometimes, you know, when people see them, that they they see this instrument with this hide skin and this gourd and this uh, blank neck. And they're like, what? Well, that's a banjo? You know, but it is. And the gourd banjos seem to be real earthy and real uh, bassy and funky. think you know it just it's obvious that she feels like she has a role to play in fostering a safe space for everybody that wants to explore the history of the banjo but especially black folks coming to explore the black history of the banjo you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been yeah so, yeah yeah well do you want one more song Yes, please. That was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear that story again, or to listen to any of the other Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. For the last decade... The West Virginia Tattoo Expo has attracted artists and enthusiasts to Morgantown, West Virginia, every summer to celebrate body art. It usually takes place in August, but this year it added a second date for the spring. Reporter Chris Schultz went out for a visit. It's just afternoon at the Waterfront Marriott, and the first annual West Virginia Spring Tattoo Expo is starting up. Artist Jacob Gordon is wasting no time in getting started on his client Bond's tattoo. Yes, you heard that name right. Yeah, like James Bond. Just Bond. Mm -hmm. All right. And what are you getting on your arm there? Uh, I'm getting a jellyfish done today. Gordon, a Morgantown-based tattoo artist, says he loves to come together with other artists and learn from each other and would support having a tattoo convention every month if possible. All of it collectively kind of goes to just maybe pushing tattooing uh, a little further in its journey. Maybe make it a little, a little less like taboo than it's been in the past. Rocco Cunningham is the convention's event promoter and organizer. He says that the expo is not only an opportunity to network and see old friends, but more importantly, it's an opportunity to keep learning about the art and the craft of tattooing. I was told by an older tattooer very early in my career that the day that you stop learning is the day that you need to just hang it up. This gives the opportunity to see every facet of tattooing, every style of tattooing. There's always something to learn and take from every experience, from every expo. 
He attributes that positive experience in no small part to Morgantown and the communal effort it takes to put on each expo, with help that comes from the city as well as the Monongalia County Health Department. Cunningham also acknowledges that a drastic change in cultural attitudes towards tattoos in recent years also plays a role in the event's success. It's, it's changed quite a bit and it's, it's been enjoyable to see that transformation. Tattoos are so much more widely acceptable and less taboo than they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Cunningham says the interest for the new convention date, which brought in artists from as far afield as Los Angeles and South America, has been just as high as the annual August event. Yeah, we have over 200 tattoo artists here this weekend, which is pretty similar to our August show. The majority of the tattooers want to do both events. It's good to know that they want to be a part of both of them, you know, that, that we have something special going, that we've built a family environment amongst the tattooers and the facility and, and the town. But everybody just loves coming back to Morgantown every year. Walking around and talking to artists, Family is a word you hear repeated. Artist Amy Lefebvre from Maryland says she has been on a waiting list for the West Virginia Tattoo Expo for years because of the event's reputation amongst artists. I've always heard it's a really good convention. I've heard it's very hard to get into. I felt very lucky to be invited. Everybody's really chill and very nice, and it feels like family and not so competitive. She said the setting doesn't hurt either, neither for herself or for prospective clients. I think it's beautiful out here. I think the college town, and I think it being um, a tourist area where a lot of people are coming through. Also for a client coming into a convention could almost be less intimidating than walking into a tattoo shop as well. So they can you know, also learn and see where I think a lot of people, the unknown is the scary part, right? Client Devin Jones couldn't agree more. The criminology major at West Virginia University says she came to the convention to take advantage of the variety on offer. This um, chance to come here and see all the artists from all over the place um, was really unique and you got to see a little bit of everyone's tattoo styles. The guy that just tattooed me, he's from Philly, so um, I also talked to a guy that was from North Carolina, so it's really cool just to see everyone come together here. Jones says she is already planning a return in August. Because it's great just to see all the styles and everything. So even if I'm not coming to get a tattoo, it's still really cool to walk around. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Coming up, we revisit a 2020 interview with Kentucky's newest poet laureate, Silas House. Even when I started writing, I I had a little typewriter that my aunt bought me, and I would take it out into the woods and, and sit with it and, and rot. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. Last month, writer Silas House was named Kentucky's newest poet laureate by Governor Andy Bashir. In a Facebook post, the best-selling author wrote, As a writer who was raised working class in the trailers of Appalachia, as a questioning person of faith, and as the first openly gay poet laureate in the Commonwealth, I will do my best to represent my place and my people. In early 2020, just ahead of the start of the pandemic, House wrote an essay in The Atlantic about the lack of media attention to catastrophic winter flooding in central Appalachia. Back then, reporter Brittany Patterson spoke with House, who began by reading part of his essay. My mother situated me on her hip, took a deep breath, and stepped off our porch into the icy floodwaters. I was two years old. It was March 1974, and the rain had been pummeling Lily, Kentucky, for two weeks. The ground had become so saturated 
that the flash flood came all at once. By the time my mother had navigated us through the waist-high mix of overflowing creek water, sewage, and debris to higher ground, my father had made it home from work, where he found water reaching the windows of our trailer. Family members came to help and frantically piled some of our belongings into a metal rowboat. When the flood receded, my parents salvaged what they could, but after days of shoveling mud, they found that the floors, furnace, and appliances had been destroyed. My mother says this was the first time she ever saw my father, a Vietnam veteran and auto mechanic, cry. It's one of the things I feel luckiest about is that I grew up in the woods. My father worked third shift, and so that meant that in the summertime when I was in school, I just about had to stay outside, you know, or or be silent. And so we were just always in the woods. We played in the creek all the time. We built dams, then we'd tear down the dam. You know, we would build elaborate rock fortresses for our Star Wars figurines. You know, we were incorporating <laughs> our toys into the natural world. Just laying, you know, in a field and looking at the clouds and uh, running with my dog. And even when I started riding, I would I had a little typewriter that my aunt bought me, and I would take it out into the woods and, and sit with it and, and write, you know. So even today, I'm 48, and I still prefer to write outside. You argue in this essay that... In a lot of ways, those of us who live in rural areas, we have a, a really a strong connection to nature. And I think the hypothesis or the crux of this article is for those who might be out of sight and out of mind, they start to lose their connection to nature. Well, I do sort of want to make the disclaimer that I, I don't think that just because somebody lives in an urban area that they're not necessarily uh, aware of nature or appreciate it. However, I think when it's something that dictates your everyday life, you are more aware of it. When you go outside and there's a mountain standing in front of you, and it is going to add an hour <laughs> to, to you get into wherever you need to go because you have to go around it, or you know you have to drive way down the river to cross the river, etc., I mean, those are really substantial parts of your day. And I know that when I was growing up, you know, I had this incredible uh, woods and pasture right in front of our house and it was just like kind of my paradise and then one day all these bulldozers came in and it became a strip mine for the next two years and it just sort of I never got over that it it changed the way that I trusted everything you know um, to see that that could be taken so I think when you live in a place of extraction especially you're real aware of, of of how it can be devastated and how it can be taken away. But there is also some kind of, I think, when you live in a place that's so ruled by the natural world, it does get into your blood and bones. It becomes a part of you. It's, it's part of your collective memory. One of the things I was most struck about your essay is in a lot of ways, it seems like that strong connection, it hasn't translated to society valuing rural communities or, or paying attention when natural disasters like the recent flooding happen. I think most Americans want nature when it's convenient for them, and they don't want to go to any trouble to protect it. I, I mean, uh, I hate to be so cynical, but that's certainly the way it feels you see people in the Smoky Mountains National Park, you know, they're admiring the beauty of the mountains, and then they'll throw their trash out the window on the way out of the park. You know, it's it's mind-boggling and it's frustrating. And I think that if you really love the natural world, you have to go out of your way to protect it in whatever way you can. At the same time, you do mention in this piece sort of the the disconnect between communities in places like Kentucky that have a really strong connection to the environment around them that also, you know, have supported a president and administration that its default is to roll back a lot of environmental regulations. How, how do you square those things? I wish I knew how to square them. You know, it's something that I think about all the time. I know where I'm from. 
people care so deeply about so many of the same issues that this administration is attacking, yet so many of them support this administration. I just, I can't quite make it. I can't come to a place of, of understanding that totally. I know that a lot of that is, is tied up in uh, religious things, you know, to some degree. And I, and I can respect that aspect of, of being true to your faith. But part of my faith is protecting the environment, you know. And so uh, I think about that when I vote as well. And I, I wish that more people in Appalachia did. And I think so often we have spent our whole lives feeling like we don't have power, seeing that our voices don't matter. And to some degree, I think we start to believe that, you know, that that that's just the way it is. That's something that I hear a lot of people say, you know, that, well, that's just the world we live in. There's nothing we can do to change it. I don't agree with that. You write one of the consequences of society sort of writing off the experience of, of rural communities for so long and of people who live in rural areas is that by turning a blind eye to rural people, we're turning a blind eye to climate change. Well, I think as long as there's been popular media, this has happened. You know, you can trace it back to the literature that came about right after the Civil War, the local color literature, where Appalachian people were among the first to be really stereotyped, you know, portrayed as throwaway people or people who don't matter, stupid people, dirty people, etc. And so when so much of the population thinks of you that way, that that really helps uh, the corporations, that helps industry. You know, it makes it much easier to come in and destroy a community when the rest of the country just thinks they're throwaway people. I mean, something I think we've become so used to being negated to, to a certain point, we just start to accept it, and we just can't do that. You know, we have to stand up against that in whatever way we can. Yeah, and recognizing that climate change is already here. It's already impacting floods and other natural disasters in in this region. To me, that's the main thesis of the essay that was in the Atlantic is, you know, I hear so many people in uh, places of power like New York City or Los Angeles or D.C. who, you know, want to talk about climate change and, and want to criticize the people of Appalachia for their role in that in the way that the region historically votes. But at the same time, these places of power are the very people who have negated rural people so long. So, it, you know, it creates this cycle that they can't seem to understand how that happens. Um, and it is complex and it's complicated, but Appalachians don't exist in a vacuum. You know, they're very aware of that negation and, and um, will take power however, you know, it's available to them. That was writer, educator, and now Kentucky Poet Laureate Silas House speaking with Brittany Patterson, now with Vermont Public. The headline of House's 2020 essay in The Atlantic is Eastern Kentucky is Underwater, but you probably didn't notice. House is openly gay, and his appointment comes at a time when Kentucky lawmakers have been passing bills targeting LGBTQ people, like one requiring public schools to adopt some anti-LGBTQ policies. Last month, Kentucky officials released guidance on how school districts should implement the new law. Here's more from WFPL reporter Jess Clark. Senate Bill 150 is the new law that requires school districts to adopt several new anti-LGBTQ policies, including banning trans students from bathrooms and locker rooms that match their gender. The law also bans gender-affirming medical care for minors, which goes into effect at the end of June. The Department of Education guidance has few specifics on what school bathroom policies should look like. Instead, it urges districts to be aware of federal protections against gender discrimination when crafting policies. The law also prevents school districts from requiring teachers to use trans and non-binary students' correct pronouns. Education Commissioner Jason Glass says many of the questions the new law raises may have to be settled in court. I'm Jess Clark in Louisville. It's wildflower season in the mountains. But do you know which plants are native to Appalachia and which ones are considered invasives? 
West Virginia Public Broadcasting News Director Eric Douglas recently visited Kanawha State Forest to learn from some experts. Can I look at plants? Yeah, let's look at some plants. I mean, within, let's not go way back up in the hills. No, there's some really good... I met a group from the Kanawha Garden Club and the Native Plant Society at Kanawha State Forest to find out more. Luann McGovern, the president of the Native Plant Society, kicked off the tour. Um, This display shows some of the more common non-native invasives in West Virginia, and these are taking over in some places quite bad. Garlic mustard, probably everybody has that beside the road or in their garden. Um, Japanese silk grass, I've seen this way out in the wilderness. It's amazing how it's just everywhere. And like, why is it a problem? Well, if you think about the ecosystem, especially in a forest like this, it's developed over thousands of years and the plants and the bugs and the birds and everything has evolved together. And when these non-natives come in, they don't know what to do with it, right? They're they're like, what am I gonna eat? Chris Gatins, a board member with the Native Plant Society, added some detail. It's an annual, but we think, uh, what I've read is um, it can be spread, the seeds can be collected into deer hair. And we do have an increasing deer population. So the deer actually spread this, and they don't eat a lot of it either. It turns out that some of these invasive plants spreading in West Virginia actually came here as packing materials and shipping containers. Meanwhile, many of the native plants are flowers many of us would overlook. Luann McGovern pointed some out. This is a great example of how these different wildflowers grow in the same patches together. Here we have trillium, Greek valerian, uh, celadine poppies, um, oh there's a, a bloodroot, of course all the ferns, and they grow together in this great oh, wild geranium, violets, I mean all within like 10 feet of each right. other in this fabulous ecosystem. Where my untrained eye saw flowers and colors, my tour guide showed me different types of flowers and explained what made them different. They even showed me something I assumed was an invasive species but was in fact native, the canebrake. Chris Gatins took up the tour. It's native to the uh, Davis Creek watershed in Kanawha County. And this was from a restoration project. Uh, we, the, a group of people, which I was included probably 15 years ago, obtained this from uh, a flooded area on Campbell's Creek, and brought it over here and established it. And now it, it sort of looks out of place but we thought that we put it into an area that would be highly observed that maybe people could look at this and say, oh, okay, well, there's, there, uh, this, there is a difference between this and uh, the invasive one. There's one that's planted commonly that you see, which is bamboo, which is Asian. Invasive plants are the ones we all know about, like multifloral rose, which was brought to the U.S. as natural fencing and just kept growing, but also certain types of honeysuckle, Yes, the lovely springtime scent by the road isn't supposed to be here. Well, the problem with this, with these invasives, is they're killing out the native species, they're choking out. They're, they are, they're, they're, they're climbing up and twining around and choking them out. And you can see what's going on here. We've got a, we've got a spice bush and it's, it's sort of suffering because this thing's overshading. And this is a, uh, this is a bladder nut here. It's a beautiful native shrub in the, uh, in, in the uh, shady areas of the forest, and it's being overtopped by this Japanese honeysuckle. Aside from the non-native plants that arrived here as packing material, or a misguided attempt to fence in cattle, some plants are added to decorative gardens and then spread out with birds and animals. As my tour guides explained to me, the only way to deal with most of these invasive plants is manual labor. You can spray, you can burn, you can... You can manually pull it up, you can cut it, but it's very, very labor intensive. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Kanawha State Forest. Conservation group American Rivers has named the Ohio River the second most endangered river in the U.S. after the Colorado River. But advocates say it's complicated. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel has the story. Heather Taylor Measley with American Rivers says this year her group placed the Ohio in the number two spot on their annual America's Most Endangered Rivers list because the river is at a critical turning point. I asked her what's at stake. We have a situation, especially with climate change, 
we need to really be considering how we manage the water more appropriately. This particular watershed is the home to the drinking water of more than 5 million people. As we see more toxic algae scares as the world warms up, as we see more pollution, as we see uh, just like the more traffic, because this is not just a beautiful place. This is a working river. And that's not really going to change. Just for people who don't know about the legacy pollution and the new kinds of pollution that are in the Ohio, can you say a little bit about what those are? The Ohio River, of course, is centrally located to a lot of the historical coal mines. Those coal mines, a lot of them have gone out of business, but the pollution that came from the mining operations exists and is often right on the banks. We have seen profound impacts from different spills, different accidents in the past. And most recently, of course, we saw that with the Norfolk Southern spill in East Palestine. That didn't even happen on the river, but because it's in the basin, 10 miles away, you know, we, we saw and picked up some of the chemicals in the Ohio River. We've got a lot of pipeline developments, a lot of fracking that is going on. All of that puts pressure on our river systems. And so we're not an anti-industry group, but we are a group that thinks that you should do it right and in a way that there can be balance. We have heard the you know term working river before. It's often used when talking about the Ohio River. And you're talking about using the word balance. It does seem like the balance tips in the direction of the working part of the river sometimes. What would you say to that? So I would say the story of the river actually changes depending on where you are. In Pittsburgh, it's part of a family of rivers and that, that headwaters region, and it's very connected to the community and you see a lot of recreation. And then as you come down, you get to places like Marietta and Parkersburg and certainly the fossil fuel legacy and the PFAS legacy is on Front Street there. But if you get over to Cincinnati, you see how people are really coming together to connect the community. Most people don't know that Cincinnati has the largest kayak festival in the entire world. And out of that has grown this amazing movement to create a trail from essentially from Cincinnati down called the Ohio River Way. What we know about river health all over the country is that when people are connected to the river, which means it has to be clean, their community benefits because it's literally healthier. It's also more economically strong. It's a place where people want to visit, a place where people want to move. And so the key, I think, is to make sure that those places that are often forgotten can now take advantage of that. And so that's why we're really excited about this designation. We're raising the profile of this river, not just talking about its challenges, but talking about this opportunity. And I think that's what brings hope and optimism to this entire story. Heather Taylor Measley from American Rivers says her group is calling for federal recognition for the Ohio River, similar to the Great Lakes and the Chesapeake Bay, and for more federal funding to support a restoration plan and improve testing for water quality. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Virginia opossum, also known as the North American opossum, or just plain possum depending on who you're talking to, has been having a moment. Possums are showing up more in pop culture especially here in the mountains. But not everyone loves possums, as a community in Harlan County, Kentucky, found out firsthand when they decided to feature a possum on a mural downtown. This story from Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave is from 2019. Residents of Harlan, Kentucky, have all sorts of opinions about possums. I think they're cute, to be truthful. Scary, but cute. <laughs> I hate them. They're disgusting. Why are they disgusting to you? Look at them. They're a big giant rat. Why wouldn't they be? It's like it's very like misrepresented. People don't see it right. And I think that that's, you know, us, Uh, not just Harlan, but the Appalachian Mountains in general, you know, we're just misrepresented. People see us as something that we're not when a lot of us are good, just like the possum. I'm here today to meet one possum in particular. It's 20 feet long and about to come to life on a brick wall downtown in the form of a mural designed by artist Lacey Hale. Panels of mural fabric sprawl across the floor of Lacey's workspace. She walks barefoot, bent over, creating sweeping brushstrokes of vibrant greens and deep purples. 
the po- you know possums are um, everywhere. You know, you see them all the time when you're driving around. You know, they kill ticks, they kill snakes. They're the America's only um, North America's only marsupial. You know, so they're like I thought they were super cool animals. Lacey worked with high school students and other community partners on the project. Some are gathered today to prep the brick wall for installation. <laughs> Robert Guype, a partner on the project, explains how the mural design came to be. We, we did a long community engagement process uh, for several months and we had people um, giving us ideas for murals all over the county. Based on the input, they chose local plants and animals as the mural's theme. They decided to feature pokeweed as a nod to Harlan's annual poke salad festival, which celebrates a dish made from the plant's leafy greens. Lacey researched pokeweed and found that it relies on certain animals to spread its seeds. One of the biggest um, proponents of that was the possum um, when I was reading about it. Possums are one of the only mammals that can tolerate the berry's toxins. In the mural, a baby possum hangs by its tail from the pokeweed's purple stem. So, I mean, these little creatures are like so cool in like so many ways. And this isn't the first time that possums have been favorably featured in Eastern Kentucky's music and art. For example, WMMT-FM out of Whitesburg is fondly nicknamed Possum Radio. But not everybody feels so warmly towards these creatures. When Knott County, Kentucky named the possum their official animal in 1986, some took offense. In a letter to the editor of the local paper, one reader wrote, My personal opinion is that an opossum is a very low and unintelligent animal. A scavenger is a better word. This action insults the intelligence of our county and Appalachian area, which we should all love. When Robert showed a draft of the mural to college students in his Appalachian Studies class, the possum caused a bit of a stir. They felt that this possum would be perceived as a representation of our community and of them, and uh, that they had had negative associations with possums due to its often being found dead in the road and and in their trash cans and maybe it's rodent-like nature that seemed to come up in some of the student responses but there just were a lot of feelings. When Lacey heard about some of the negative reactions to the possum she was surprised. When I was told that I was completely shocked because I've never really encountered anybody that's like um been so vehemently against uh, like an animal <laughs> being in a piece of artwork. Lacey learned that some people associate possums with negative stereotypes about hillbillies that often appear in popular media. The 1960s television show The Beverly Hillbillies regularly featured bits about eating possum, like this scene where Jed Clampett and Granny invite a pair of tax collectors to stay for supper. Uh, you're not by any chance cooking mustard greens and possum innards, are you? Not tonight. No, we had them last night. I'll say. Me too. Tonight we is having leftovers. But more and more, artists from within the region are turning those negative associations inside out. I've always liked ugly animals, misunderstood animals. Artists like Raina Rue, the creative force behind Juniper Moon folk arts. Raina is currently based in Winchester, Kentucky, but hails from Irvine. She describes her work as a weird little hodgepodge of rural, queer art you can wear. Her pins feature pawpaws, rainbows, and morel mushrooms, with phrases like homegrown in the holler and kudzu queer. My top sellers are my possums. I sell more possums than anything else, which I love. It makes me so happy. Some of the possums are cute and cuddly. Some look tough and ornery. One hangs from a rainbow flag by its tail, Another sports a red bandana around its neck. Raina's favorite possum design is her most recent. And he's like punk, and he's wearing a vest that says homesick on the back, and he's crying and smoking a cigarette in a trashy alley. Raina calls him the homesick possum. So it's kind of like a little ode to like displaced country folk. It's also a tribute to Appalachia's DIY arts and punk communities, some of which are embracing the underdog animal as a kind of mascot. For Reina, the misunderstood possum is more than just a cute, weird little creature. They're resilient. They don't need any sort of special surroundings to live in. They can live like under a truck or, you know, in the woods in a hole in a tree. And I guess I can relate like resiliency, uh, scrappiness, all those things to, again, where I come from and the kind of people that I come from. Lacey also hopes more people will begin to think possums are, well, awesome. And I would like to see them, you know, be appreciated for what they are. 
And her wish seems to be coming true. As possums are popping up on jewelry and t-shirts, as tattoos, in memes that possum fans share on social media, and on this now colorful wall in downtown Harlan. Possums are in. <laughs> possums are it. <laughs> possums are the thing. <laughs> For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Harlan, Kentucky. One down the middle, just a streaking through the night. There's one in the ditch line. Where did they all go? There were half a dozen possums in the Since that story last aired, the possum discourse has only gotten hotter. So how do you feel about it? Are possums a symbol of resilient Appalachia? Or do they make you just want to play dead? Tell us about it on Instagram, Twitter, or by sending us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. So I can move along Is it just because they're friendly Or the fact that I am gone Stepping over lines Of the paths they travel along Living on the hot side Better keep it on the low Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by David Mayfield, John R. Miller, Jeff Ellis, Marissa Anderson, and Town Mountain. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.